0: It's the time of the year. I don't know how to dress. It's cold outside, so I try to put a jacket on just in case it's warm inside. Take it off, then I put this thing on. I don't know if I can take it off anymore. I'm not sure how the how that goes. But anyway, I was asked, "Why am I so? Why have I got a suit coat on?" And that's why. You know, one thing I like about the congregation here is the feedback I often get. Uh, really, every Sunday, there's positive feedback. There's extra thoughts. There's other scriptures that come to mind. Um, Some critiques at times that are always uh, good and positive and uh, help me to think things through. And um, one of the things that we talked about last week, uh, I wanted to clarify a little, uh, maybe illustrate uh, some on on this. Um, If you were here and listening you may have uh, heard the, when we talked about the lust of the flesh, the, or the, uh, let's see how it say in the NIV, the, the cravings of the sinful man. And one of the things I said there was, um, we, well, let me just, I have my notes here so I say it right. We control our feelings. We uh, control our feelings rather than being controlled by our feelings. And the question was asked, well, how do you control your feelings? All right. Lorenzo, I haven't asked him this. Can you help me? All right. Come on up here. Lorenzo, my, my little brother, is bigger than me. What you got under that coat? Shortly yeah yeah good, good. Uh, pull that just pull your your sleep there you go that'd, that'd be fine mm-hmm. All right good yeah Set on just in case you needs to talk but I'm going to ex- explain what I mean the cravings of the flesh, the lust of the flesh. all right Lorenzo, tell everyone oh my goodness. jackets. all right. What do, I, what do I have here? A needle. Yeah, He has a needle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, I want to ask you, uh, when I said the, the lust of the flesh, it, it's not so mysterious. We sometimes take the cravings of the sinful nature. Well, that's, that's a mysterious thing. What does that mean? And, and if we don't, if, we, if this mysterious thing is happening, we don't know how to handle it sometimes. So, we have, so I think we, if we put a name on it. And say, this is what it is. We can learn how to control the lust of the flesh. Now, I want to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> if I were to take this, I it's been disinfected, by the way. All right. All right. And I were to stick it in your arm. Mm-hmm. What would you feel? Pain. Pain. Right. right. You'd feel pain. That's uh-huh. true. All right. Yeah. But what else would you feel? You'd feel more than just pain. Uh, I
1: feel confused.
0: Confused? <laughs> <right>? <laughs> well, why would you feel confused? I don't know why. You did had, that. Yeah, I don't know why you do that. To illustrate, to be a good illustration. Okay. All right, all right. Uh, what else? You feel some other things too, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, I feel regret for coming up here. Yeah, regret. <laughs> <laughs>
0: regret for coming up here. What else? Any other uh, shock, maybe? Yeah. I don't yeah. Sure. What? No, nah, I, I wouldn't hit him. You wouldn't hit me? All right. You wouldn't hit me. But anger, maybe? Yeah. No. Anger, no. I wouldn't say anger. You wouldn't say Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well,
0: you are a better man than I, Gunga Dean. <laughs> Um, All right. Now, this this is takes a little bit more. Those are the feelings that you would have. Now, if I said, Lorenzo, control your feelings, don't feel that, and I did it, would you be able to? No. All right. That, that, and that was the question. I can't, can't control that. Now, let me ask you this. What would you be tempted to do? Now, there's nothing wrong with temptation. I would
1: be tempted to hit you back.
0: You'd be, <laughs> you'd be tempted to hit me back. You'll not too. temptation. <laughs> All right. That's right. Alright, and this is that's what I meant. It's really metaphor, a metaphor, control your feelings. You can't control your feelings, right? If I go you know, if I do that, shall I illustrate it to everyone?
1: No. <laughs> wow. Uh let me put it up
0: just in case I am tempted to do that. All right, let me stick that back in there. Thank you, Lorenzo. You know, you'd be tempted, yeah. I knew I could rely on him. You would be tempted to do certain things. But what the Bible teaches us, this is what the lust of the flesh, the passions of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, is we are often tempted by our feelings to do things. And the Bible says, don't yield to those temptations. You control those uh, temptations. My dad pointed out this passage and it's beautiful. Uh, Galatians five twenty four. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature, who have crucified the flesh. It's how some translations say that with is passions and desires. We all have feelings. We cannot. God gave us those feelings. There's nothing wrong with feelings. What is wrong is when we respond to those feelings in a sinful way. And that's what he's talking about. Some of you woke up with a crick in your neck. Some of you woke up with your, your back feeling bad. Some of you, you were it's the the. Barometric bar, baromatic, pressure, whatever it is, the pressure gave you sinus, whatever, and you have those feelings, and there's nothing wrong with those feelings. But what you do is you react to those feelings in a sinful way, and that's what we're called not to do. Do not act according to the sinful nature. You can control your feelings metaphorically. You can control your feelings. You can control the result, or not the result. The um, Julie gave me the word. The uh, response. Thank you to your feelings, and that's what we're trying to do. Re- re- that's what we're learning to do as Christians is re- is uh, control the response to those feelings. Um, also, I mentioned uh, the these. I mentioned uh, Eve's temptation, Adam and Eve's temptation, and it, where it said it was good when she looked at the the tree. It was good for food, pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom. I mentioned that early in the lesson and then it was brought out to me, which I've seen it before. Just it didn't occur to me to share it with you, that those are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the uh, eyes and the pride of life. He says there it was good for food. She saw it was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. This is something that's appealing to her flesh. The uh, pleasing to the eye, it looked good. So she responding to the lust of the eyes and desirable for gaining wisdom, the pride of life. Or as the NIV says, boasting about all that he has and does looking at those things. So let me just I want to uh, to put uh, to review that a bit before we go into this text. And let's read it together. First, John, chapter two, verses 18 through 23. <clears throat> Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie comes from the truth, who is the liar, it is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ, such a man is the Antichrist, he denies the father and the son. No one who's denied the son has the father, whoever acknowledges the son has the father also. This is a difficult passage. And the good thing about preaching through a a book, expositorily going through a book, is that it. Forces me, forces the preacher to deal with it. If I were to skip over this, some of you would say, well, why did you skip over that? And this is an example of a passage as I read it that'd be easier for me to skip over than, than deal with. I found there's four areas or four topics that are that I find difficult and hard to explain. Now, let me say this. Difficult is not a bad thing. Peter wrote uh, about Paul's writing, and he said some of the things Paul wrote are hard to explain. Here is an apostle, Peter, who says in reading Paul, sometimes he's hard to understand. If you read through the prophets, you may find that difficult. Some of our Bible classes are on the prophets uh, this this, uh, Wednesday, Wednesday nights. They're difficult to understand at times. And when we come to the book of Revelation, some hesitate to study it. You know, we we did John, we did First John, and if we do Second and Third John. You know, the the other book that John wrote, Revelation. Should we go into Revelation? Well, a lot of people go, "Oh man, that's that's difficult to explain. Let's not go there." But we need to face up to the fact that not all the Scripture is easy to understand, and actually, that's good. Because if the Bible were simplistic, we would know it's not true. If it was so simplistic, we we would just know it's not true. The very fact that there's some areas that are difficult to understand simply underscores the fact that we're dealing with the supreme being who's beyond understanding. And we can be thankful that God and his wisdom gave us these writings. It just these writings just begin to touch. The wonder, the surface of his wonder, they begin to open up the minds to to eternal truths. Sometimes you read it and leaves us in mystery. And that's good. But don't be afraid to dig into God's word. Don't be afraid to try and understand it. Don't be afraid even to say, I don't understand what that says. That's okay to do that. And that's why God gives us teachers to help us pull out God's word. Philip was ran up to a chariot once. Acts chapter 8. Do you remember the question he asked the person reading Isaiah? Do you understand what you're reading? Why did he ask such a question? If he was reading an ABC book, would he have done that? A is for apple, B is for bear. Of course not. That's simple to understand. But just the complexity of the scripture at times causes us to ask that question Do you understand what you're reading or I don't understand what I'm reading? Help me to understand this passage. And that's why I love this congregation. The feedback that I often get from people who've studied the Bible for many, many years, longer than I have even. And can help me understand the scriptures. Here's the comforting thing. You know, a lot of times people step back and say, oh, I can't understand the Bible. It's too hard. uh, I have to listen to the preacher or whatever. Actually, when it comes to the very essential, important things, such as salvation and how you are to practically live your Christian life, the Bible is absolutely clear. That's the wonderful thing about the Bible. You have to put it. Here's what's hard about it is putting it into practice. That's the hard thing. Love is patient. Very clear. Very easy to understand. Very hard to do. All right. But the very essential things on how to live your Christian life uh, are very clear in the Bible. Now, I'm going to say here before I get into this text that after further study, I might change my mind. I'm going to share with some things with you. And then, as like I said, this is a difficult passage. And so I'll leave that option open. I may change my mind here. Let's look at the four difficulties that I came up with. Uh, first, the wording is cumbersome to me. I don't know about you. Maybe you understood that passage really, really clearly to you, but it's almost as if he's making multiple statements. They're hardly connected to each other or they're kind of connected, but not the way I would I would uh, connect them. Uh, I read I don't even know how many different versions I read this week, read this passage in many different versions exported in the uh, Greek text. It added to my confusion. English words and phrases are added to the various translations to help us make the text more sense at times. Uh, And that's a difficulty in language and it's a difficulty in translations. Now, excuse me, I know that many of you here are not language people. Here's what a teacher usually is, a language person. We like words, all right? Math is okay, but words are great, all right? (laughs) But that and that's good. I mean that, that's that's what happens. Communication is difficult and it's a difficult task to communicate clearly. If you don't believe that, just get married. Find out you'll find out that what you said wasn't what she heard you say. And so when you clarified and restated what you said, you find it only met, muddied up the water more. That's communication, right? We're trying to this give and take trying to understand one another. So communication from one language to another language even makes it more difficult. Um, the Bible is communication from God. I was thinking about that this morning. God is communicating to us. So we're, we're really saying God, God concepts, spiritual concepts are trying to be communicated to us. In words, in this written word, and that's why he gave us a living word, Jesus, because he could communicate that better in the life of a living person rather than in just words. Um, besides that, this, the, the language here was written, uh, the Bible was written in two, uh, two major language, different languages than English. <clears throat> Years ago, I was teaching a lesson to a Samoan in Western Samoa, and we were sitting in a folly. Folly is a, we're right near the equator, so they don't have any uh, walls. They just have posts and a a roof, thatched roof. And if it rains or if the weather gets cold, like down to 85 degrees, they drop some plaited uh, blinds, really, that's what they are. And so this person I was teaching was really about 20 feet away to my left, sitting up against one of the posts. And I was sitting up against the post, and my translator was sitting a little bit in front of me to my left, translating, sitting up against another post. And I spoke and I taught a lesson. And the man looked at me seriously, uh, solemnly, the entire lesson. Not a smile. Every now and then he kind of nod. And I asked him if he had at the end if he had any questions. And he had a couple of questions and I answered them. And then he, he just started talking for about literally 15 minutes. And he had a very serious expression, and he, he looked like he was uh, angry and upset. And I looked at my translator, Talasanga was his name, and I looked at him and I thought, the way he's responding to that, very seriously, I really messed up. I mean, I said something I, I shouldn't have said or said it in a way I, or his translator wrong. I don't know what I've done wrong. And I'm sitting there looking at my notes and going through the scriptures as I'm listening to the Samoan language, trying to figure out how am I going to respond to this? I hope I haven't chased him away. When that was over, Talasanga looked at me and said, he says, thank you very much for the lesson. <laughs> and I said, that's all he said. Essentially, that's what he said. He spent 15 minutes thanking me for this lesson. But I was reading all these negative things. And I just showed you the The difficulty in translating uh, to to another language is very, very, very hard. As I said, most of you probably realize the Bible was not written in English, mainly in two different languages. And so we have translation that is difficult And the different versions, I think, attest to scholarship and struggles at times. As I said earlier, and this is important, the, the passages that most matter are very clear. And you have to work to misunderstand those. But we're addressing a difficult area here, and I want to clarify the the struggle that I had with this text. Secondly, he says, this is the last hour. And what makes this difficult is it's the only place in the Bible that that phrase is used. Last hour. We hear we can read last days, last times, the hour. Those are terms that are used, but the last hour is not used. And so my question was, do these refer to the same thing or do they refer to different things? And and we need to address that. To further complicate it, the word the is added to the text by the translators to help you to help it be more understandable. The word the last hour is not there. An absolute literal translation is this last hour is. And so we would say literally this is last hour. And since that's awkward in English. Many of them translate it, this is the last hour. And you're sitting there saying, well, what difference does it make? Well, we're going to explore that in a moment. It does make a difference. Third, there's a reference to Antichrist. That further complicates the interpretation of the text. And again, did you know that only John uses that term, Antichrist, four times in First John, once in Second John? But we live in a culture and a time period That has misused this term. They've twisted the word. They've done it in such a way that bringing out what I believe are false concepts to what John is saying. So we have to deal with that. Fourth, John speaks of an anointing. And that's uh, also a, a concept that's foreign to us. There's little significance in anointing today. And there's a lot of teaching about anointing that says something like it's a special thing for special Christians. Or if you're especially blessed by God, then you get an anointing. And again we have to unwrap some false concepts. But don't worry. I'm not going to spend much time talking about what the passage doesn't say as what it does say. So many tie it to what it doesn't say that it's important to at least mention that. So in the short time I have left very short time I have to untie the words, explain the last hour, the Antichrist, which can easily leave Lead to the theories of tribulation, thousand year reign, the beast, man of lawlessness, rapture, seven year tribulation. And on top of that, explain anointing. How much time do we have? <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on two topics, lay a foundation for the, the, the text in later lessons and give you three applications and try and do that fairly quickly. Let's look at this last hour. And it's really interesting to me. If you look at that uh, verse 18, dear children, this is the last hour that he he prefaces it with dear children. This is the same word that he used in verse 13. And it means the immature. Uh, it, it, it could be translated something like and this is we don't use this too much. I don't think here in, in the States. Little damsel or l- my toddler or little lad. It's, it's a it's a term of affection, uh, tenderness, uh, and even and I think he's addressing to the immature here, the very immature Christians, even though it's something that mature Christians need to listen to. He's making sure that the immature Christians are paying attention. And why? Because it's the immature that can especially get upset when things go wrong. John is going to address some things that are going wrong. Immature. Give you an illustration. My sister Claudia and I used to touch my sister Paula in the back seat of the car. You know, you've done it too. You touch them. Don't touch me. All right. And then you maybe you get your finger really close. And you're not touching them, and she's screaming, "Don't touch me!" And mom or dad in the front say, "Stop touching her." You know. I'm just touching her. I'm not touching her. So then Claudia and I devised the next way of torture. We would just look at her. Just looking at her. They're looking at me. But you know, the last time we tried that was at Christmas a few years ago. We were sitting around the table and Claudia and I said, let's look at Paul, And we just stared at her. And after about... Two three minutes, she looked at us and said, "I know what you're doing." (laughs) She said, "That doesn't bother me anymore." (laughs) Took all the fun out of it. But you know, that's the difference between mature and immature. Things that bother us when we're immature really didn't matter anymore. The things that bother you in your first year of marriage, you you know, in your 40th year, if it's still bothering you, you're still immature. You know. You know, if it's, it's you, you grow out of some of those things, you grow up and grow out of those things. It doesn't bother you anymore. And so he's saying to the immature Christians, he says, dear children, this is the last hour. And as I said, this is unique to this passage. Some say that the early Christians believed Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. And that's certainly true. First century Christians lived in expectation of Jesus coming. But they take this passage and they say the apostle John at the age of about 90 believed Jesus would return in his lifetime. He's going to return in the next few months or the next year or so. And obviously, Jesus didn't return. So John was wrong. Here's the problem with that. It's a very dangerous position. If we say John was wrong, then we can't trust John. It calls him to question the inspiration of the scriptures. If John got this wrong, what else did he get wrong? So I don't think he's saying that at all. What he he wasn't saying, Jesus is coming in the next year or so. So what was he saying? In the Old Testament, time was divided into two sections, uh, two eras uh, present and the age to come. The age to come was the time uh, of the Messiah, when the Messiah would come, the messianic age, when he would come victoriously. And so John is saying here, we are in the last era. This is the Messianic Age. We're in a sphere of time where there's nothing else to come. This is the last hour. This is it. Hebrews chapter 1 um, states that. Let me get over here. My Bible's starting to fall apart. I'm going to have to tape it up. Let's see here. There it is. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. And many times in various ways in the past, that was the present age. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's what John is talking about. I think he is talking about the last days, the last era. This is the last time. There's nothing more to, to, to come. And why this is important to understand is John isn't saying there are certain things that are happening right now that are right before the second coming of Jesus. He is reminding them that they, and thus us, we're in the final period of history. There's not going to be another Savior. God has no plans to send another Savior. This is it. Jesus is the only Savior. There's no other plan by which man must be saved. John is saying this is the last hour. This is it. There's no other plan. The the plan that's been put forth... It's in motion, and that's it, last times. God's not going to go do something different at another time yet to come to bring them into a relationship with him other than what he has already accomplished through his son Jesus. That's it. It's the last era. It's the last epoch. It's the last days. It is last hours. It is last hour. That's what it is. And then we go into Antichrist. Again, this is only a term that John uses. It's used five times by John, four in this letter and once in his second letter. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, which makes this more difficult. Let me get back to 1 John. He um, doesn't use the article. Let me read this to you. 2.18 he says, uh, dear children, this is the last hour, or he should say, Dear children, this is last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist, the is not in the text. As you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Now you say, well, what difference does the word the mean? It, 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 if you're not a language person, I understand. Just hang with me. Words mean something. Uh, I was sitting I was trying to learn the Fijian language and I was eating, I was in a village Sitting down on the floor, eating breakfast. And uh, I would picked up enough language and listening that I was going to try something. Be really bold and just speak out. And they had been saying in Fijian, eat up, eat up. You know, times, you know, eat up, you know. So I thought I would do that after the prayer. I'm going to do that. So I said after the prayer. Yeah, amen. I said, uh, and they all just died laughing. And I'm like, what? What did I say? And they said, you just called us big eaters. <laughs> Instead of eat up, I said big eaters. And the difference was two letters, ba, ba, kind of That's all it was. One little tiny word made a big difference. Instead of saying eat up, you know, there's plenty of food. I'm saying you're a bunch of big eaters, fatsoes, you know, <laughs> basically what I was saying. Uh, At that village, they said that they, they will always remember me as the kind guy. (laughs) So he, he leaves out a word and there's a purpose and it's important that we see this instead of you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. When you read that, it sounds like a particular person. The Antichrist is coming and that's led to fantastic speculation. It's important to know this speculation does not promote faith. It often produces fear and kind of grab hold of that. Speculation doesn't produce faith. It often produces fear, though, according to some theories right before the end, right before Christ's coming, a world leader will emerge for a time. There'll be everything will be great. People will follow him blindly. Then his true motives come out. He begins to destroy Christians somewhere in all this is a great battle called the Battle of Armageddon. (laughs) I've never read any of the series by Tim LaHaye, uh, Left Behind, but I understand that the Antichrist is part of that. You can correct me if you've read it. Uh, all the rest of the stuff. Once a missionary friend from a denomination in Fiji went to Julia and she said, aren't you worried? Aren't you worried about the last days? Aren't you worried about the tribulation to come? Aren't you worried about the Antichrist? She was surprised to find out Julia wasn't worried at all. That wasn't a concern of hers at all, but her belief system was based on speculation and it produced fear. Here's a woman trying to teach people about Jesus based on fear. How effective do you think she was? John uses the Antichrist, and when he does, he tells us who the Antichrist is. Would you like to know who he is? I'm going to tell you who he is because John tells us. You know, every political leader... And every religious leader in the past 2,000 years has been thought by someone to be Antichrist. In the second century, it was going to be a Jewish, unknown Jewish man who was going to go back and rebuild the temple. And he would be the Antichrist. That was in the year 100 to 2, 300, somewhere around there. Later, later on, the Catholic the Church, as it emerged, it said it's going to be a world ruler. The Protestant churches in the 1500s said it's the Pope. The Pope's the Antichrist. Recent years, it's been Hitler, Mussolini. If you're too young to have read your Second World War history, it's been Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, John Kennedy. I believe you can find, if you Googled enough, a time that every president, from at least from Roosevelt on, has been said by someone to be the Antichrist, including our, pres- our current president. Barack Obama. If that bothers you, Google Antichrist George Bush. <laughs> I'm sure he has been too. I'll make a ne- I'll make a prediction to you. The next U.S. president will also be said by someone to be the Antichrist. If it's Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. You might have a tendency to agree with. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All right. All right. I just I just. I just lost half a third of you or something. It's a joke, all right? But no, it's true. I mean, I don't care who it is. I don't care who is the next president. If it's me, and I'm not even running, I will be said to be the Antichrist. It doesn't matter who, who gets up there. But then John tells us. See, we're, we're so, we, we read the internet too much, or we read books too much, and John actually tells us who the Antichrist is. Let's look at it. Look at verse twenty-two. Who is the liar? It is a man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the antichrist. The word "the" is in the text there. This man, the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, is the antichrist. Chapter four, verse three. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not that does not acknowledge. Jesus is not, it, let's not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Second John, uh, verse seven, similar thing. The Antichrist is anyone who says Jesus is not the Christ. That is the Antichrist. antichrist. Let, me, let me sum all this up with three applications. First, a focus on the last times takes us from living Christ-centered lives to living, I don't know how to say this, eschatology-centered lives. The word eschatology is, a, is a, the theological word for study of last days. And I have known people who have been so focused on last day studies that they don't hear anything else that the Bible says. That's all where their mind is. You know, the, the, the main question... I was asked of new Christians in Fiji, when I studied with a new Christian, and I said, what would you like to study after, after they would become a Christian? You know what they said? The book of Revelation. They wanted to study last times. They wanted to find out what's going on, especially it was around the year 2000, and oh, there's all this stuff going on, the end of the world is coming in the year 2000. That's where their focus was. I said, hey, let's just study about some things and get this right, and, Then we'll look at that later. I mean, things like, uh, you know, love one another. Let's work on that. And then once you get that, then we'll look at the book of Revelation. The proper focus on living last hour is centered in Christ. And you can turn if you turn over to Second Thessalonians, chapter five. He and I'm just going to summarize it here without reading it. He says the second coming is going to be unexpected like a thief in the night. But in verse four, he says, but you won't be surprised. You won't be surprised as Christians because you are light children. You're children of light. And then he goes and says, so live Christ centered, Christ controlled lives. Verse six. That's my summation of it. So he says, yes, he's coming, but you don't be surprised at it. But don't focus on his coming. Here, what you focus on is living a life in Christ. Living christ in their lives. Later on in the second and second Thessalonians, he says, basically, it seems like some Christians had stopped working and they were just waiting for the second coming of Christ. You know, I mean, Jesus is coming, so let's stop working. You know, why have a job if he's going to come? I mean, that's like if you knew that 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 the American dollar was going to be worth zero Tuesday and you knew it, what would you do Monday? You buy everything you can. All right. You would just take every penny out of your bank account and you would say, what's something solid to I pay off my house or whatever it is. You would put that into some kind of real estate because you know Tuesday is not going to be worth anything. Also, right, these people are going, Jesus is coming in the next week. So why work? Guess what Paul said? Go get a job. <laughs> yeah, you live in expectation, but you... You don't know when that's going to happen, so you get a job. You quit being busybodies. You focus on being Christ in there. Christ works, and you need to learn how to work, too. We need to live our lives in expectations of this coming, but we're not concerned about His coming. And there's a difference. We look in expectation and longing for it, but we're not concerned about it. If it happens today, it happens today. If it happens A thousand years from now, it happens a thousand years from now. That's not the point. Second, things go wrong. Expect it. The mature realize bad things happen. If you look in verse 19, we skipped over it. We'll probably touch on it at a later lesson. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Because if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. Mature realize things like that are going to happen. They're not surprised when it happens, when people walk away from the Lord. The mature are less uh, naive. And so when people fall away, they're hurt, yes, they're saddened, yes, but they're not surprised. These are hard times. It can be discouraging. And so we simply know that we fortify ourselves, we persevere, and that fortifies our faith in Christ. Yeah, things go wrong. Expect it. God tells you it's going to happen. Third, be aware of the true Antichrist. Today we see the Antichrist. He's all around us. There are some that say that Jesus was not a real historical person. He was not God in the flesh. Some of these are well-known scholars. They write books. They write them very well. Seemingly convincing. Many of these people are nice. They have a charismatic way about them. They're likable. You like them. But let me tell you, they're antichrist. Some of these folks are your college professors, the cool ones. A cool college professor comes in there and he can make you, he can twist the words around and make you think that the foolishness of believing that there's someone called Jesus ever was. If he was a historical figure, we don't have any evidence that he he, uh, truly lived. Maybe your roommate, maybe your boss, fellow employee. John would say, don't fall for their smooth words and their vast Google knowledge. You know that? I mean, people, you you know the people who memorize the Internet? They just, they can just get anything off the Internet and they just, they just rapid fire at you. And they have this vast Google knowledge and you're just sitting there like, I can't, I don't even have time to respond. They are antichrist. They are the Antichrist. Some are more subtle than that. These won't go directly and say anything negative about Jesus. They just simply minimize sin. Sin doesn't really matter. Sin's not important. We all do it. God forgives. God looks the other way. God understands. He doesn't lay that against you. You know what that's doing? It's destroying Jesus through the back door. It's saying... If sin, wasn't, if sin wasn't destructive, then there'd be no need for the cross. If God could simply turn a blind eye to our sins, saying, oh, humans will be humans. You know, we'll let it go. Then the sacrifice of Jesus was worthless. This is Antichrist. This is the Antichrist in a different form. So John brings us back to the important. He says, there is a real God. Who really must punish every sin. And every person stands guilty before him. No person can do anything to make amends. So, God in love, through Christ, made the ultimate sacrifice. He's given the opportunity to every person to have their sins cleansed and their future sins cleansed. Taken care of through the Advocate. Jesus Christ. That's our focus. That's our hope. That's where our focus needs to be. Not on the Antichrist coming. Not on last days. Yes, there is last. We are in last days. There is Antichrist. But our focus is on Jesus and what he does and how he affects my life right now. And if If no matter what happens, if someone comes in and shoots every one of us, it's okay. You're sitting at a restaurant like some people were in Paris, and the guns go. It is the last hour, but you're ready. That's where our focus needs to be centered in Christ, rooted in Him, living in Him. And that's what we encourage you to do, and that's what the, the scripture encourages you to do. Live for Jesus. Focus on him. Don't worry about all the mess going on. Expect it. This world's a mess, all right? And it's going to continue to be a mess. I don't care who the president is. It's always going to be a mess. But we're focused on Jesus. The mess is taken care of. If we can help anyone in a public way, our elders will come up here and assist you as we stand and as we sing this song.